Merry Christmas and welcome to the Eerie First Podcast, the weekly message series featuring Pastor Nicole Schreiber. It's Christmas time again, and we're in a series called He Shall Be Called, where we're looking at the names of God and what the promises of Jesus' arrival means for our lives. Last week, Pastor Nicole started off by looking at Jesus as our wonderful counselor. Today, we'll be looking at Jesus as our mighty God, and we have a very special guest to share with us. Pastor Jack Reisner is the former lead pastor here at Erie First Assembly, where he served for 21 years, and he's joining us again today for the first time in over six years. He's going to share about his journey with Convoy of Hope, a relief organization that feeds and cares for people all around the world. So let's continue our Christmas series. Here's Pastor Jack Reisner. So for the last six years, Pam and I have been walking on a journey with a a compassion group, a compassion movement called Convoy of Hope, who last year served 29 million people. Yeah. Yeah. It is an amazing thing that in a world full of despair, and I define despair as thinking that tomorrow will be no better than today. And to see hope arrive at the right time, in the right place. And for people to understand that hope and begin to to grab hold of that hope and understand that that hope has no vanishing points. And that that hope has a name. And that name is Jesus. So this last year, or this year, uh, Toby Mack contacted Convoy of Hope and said, hey, I've just recorded a song that it makes me think of you, you guys at Convoy, and if you like it, you can use it. So we listened to it and said, we like it, we're going to use it, and we put a video to it, and then we sent it to Toby Mack, and Toby Mack said, I love that video, I like it, can I use it? And we said, yeah, you can use it. So here it is. Never early, never late. He gon' stand by what he claimed Live enough life to say I heard your heart I see your pain Life to say, help us on. When I 
So last week, last week, Pastor Nicole began you in a view of the prophet named Isaiah in a chapter called Isaiah 9. I want you to understand that Isaiah was the Toby Mac of 8th century BC. He was the dude. He spoke into three generations of, of Jewish people, the first generation being those who were being warned of an upcoming invasion. He spoke to those that were there during the invasion and were captured and kidnapped into another country. And he spoke to those who would return back from that country. The people were at that time in, in, in great fear. In fact, they were in what we would call an enigma. They were confused. They didn't understand. It was a mystery. Was God for them? Was God against them? Was God abandoning them? They didn't realize how they got into it, and they didn't understand how they would get out of it. And Isaiah was there to tell them, hope is on the way. Hang on. Among Isaiah's prophecies, all of those prophecies that you read, if you read through the book of Isaiah, there are two visions that he declares that there will be the answer, and that answer will be a child. And when that child comes, that child will be God's presence, will be God's character, will be God's energy, his power. He said, that is the help that is heading your way. And this is what he said. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no vanishing point. There will be no end. In 8th century BC, you could go to the mall downtown and you could buy a god. You could buy a variety of gods according to what you felt your need was. And every one of those gods was called the same thing, Elohim, just your ordinary God. When Isaiah spoke, he did not say Elohim. He said mighty God, which is the word El. And it means this, the superior deity, the one that cannot be surpassed. You can't go beyond this one. And the government will be upon his shoulder. It's like he's being knighted. He will carry the authority and power of God himself, and it will be evident that help is on the way. So when that child was born, which we celebrate in this season, when he was born, those who followed him began to record the government on his shoulders and began to declare, look what he is doing. So Jesus meets a man with a flesh-eating disease, and as everybody runs, Jesus comes to him and holds him, and after he's done holding him, he has brand-new flesh. Mighty God. Jesus could move the elements. He could take H2O and turn it into Chardonnay. Mighty God. He could take a typhoon and make it a great day for sailing and fishing. Elohim. He would attend funerals, and somehow, somehow, the dead person suddenly became the host of a party and a celebration, Elohim. But 
the most amazing thing. The most amazing thing he did is he changed the heart. He recreated people the way that he had designed from the beginning. It was the greatest proof of his work, of his power. The Apostle Paul wrote about this, about this one that, that he met personally through a revelation, this, this one named Jesus. And he, and he declared what happens when you come in contact with Jesus, whether you are pursuing to know Jesus right now and are not sure about him, but you are trying to get close to him to figure him out. Or you have followed him for 50 years. There is a thing that he does in us. In fact, Paul earlier would say, we are being, it, it, is, it is our predestination to be conformed to his image. That he will take his heart and shape our heart according to his heart. Paul wrote, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Literally, it is this. For we are God's fabric, manufactured in Christ Jesus. So here's the deal. Whether you recognize it or not, the moment you come in, come in contact with Jesus and he begins to influence your life, he begins to take parts of God's heart and weave them into your heart. He is changing who you are and is wanting you to activate that thing that he is weaving into you. Now, the amazing thing about what he is weaving into us is that it is so powerful that, first of all, it has no vanishing point, and secondly, it cannot just be contained in your heart. So I've wrestled a lot of years with people who say these words, and I understand because I used to say them too. I've accepted Jesus as my personal Savior. No, you haven't. You personally have accepted Jesus, but he is not your personal Savior. In fact, you read the words of the prophets they say, and, and, and the apostles. They say, Jesus has come because God wants to reconcile all things to himself in every place. That it is so powerfully put within you that it cannot stay in your heart. It must go out from you, that which he has woven there, to touch nations and neighbors. It is what he's called us to do. So that we can say to them by our very presence and our actions, hey, help us on the way. How many of you have ever been in a spot where, where you've run out of resources or ideas or you just can't, you can't help yourself anymore and you've called for help? Anybody? You called for help? I once called for help here in Erie and didn't even know I did it. My usual pattern was to come into the office here in the church on a Saturday morning and finalize everything for Sunday. And on this particular morning, I stopped by Panera and got one of those cinnamon crunch bagels. Ever had those? Those are going to be with us in heaven. <laughs> those things are amazing. So I went into the office. I went into the workroom that had a toaster. I put it in the toaster, went back to my office to do some work, and all of a sudden, I heard the fire alarm go off. I thought, oh, man, what's on fire in this church? And this is a big church. i got to go find the fire. So I went running down the hall only to see the smoke coming out of the workroom. I walked in, and the Cinnamon Crunch bagel was on fire. I unplugged the toaster, dumped it out, beat out the Cinnamon Crunch fire, and threw it in the trash. 
And then, as I thought about how am I going to get the smoke out of here, I remember that the church has a monitoring system that lets people know when the, fo the, the fire alarm goes off, and they're responsible for getting help. So I ran back, called on the phone, gave them the code, and the lady that answered said, help us on the way. I said, no, 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 no. She said, sorry, they're on their way. I came out here to this entrance and listened to the siren from Kearsarge and those poor volunteer fire people. Here they came down the driveway, came screeching in, and the lead person came out and said, what's on fire? A bagel. He said, what? A bagel. Now, if that's not embarrassing enough, I said, don't need your help. He said, yeah, but we are mandated. We must now go to what was on fire and determine it. It's out. So I had to take the fire crew through the hallway into the workroom, reached in, grabbed the bagel, held it up. The guy in charge took the bagel and went, it's out. <laughs> Have a nice day. Neither the bagel or I needed the fire department to come and help that day. 15 years later, I needed them. 15 years later, Pam is driving back from Kansas City, where she has spent time with two of our grandkids. And how many of you have grandkids? How many of you know that they're the joy of your life and they'll suck the life out of you? <laughs> yeah. So she had spent several days and was having it getting, and also they're great, great distributors of colds and flu. You know that? So she wasn't feeling good. She's driving home. She's coming down a state highway, two lanes going each way, in between a huge grass median. And sometimes across the median is a road that crosses so people can get on the other way. And, and she's driving at 70 miles per hour. She has it on cruise control. And she's so wiped out, she falls asleep. She slowly comes to the side of the road, toward the median, goes into the median, hits a road sign, which kind of can opens part of the top of the, the car. She hits a viaduct that goes underneath the road going across. The car flips over several times, lands on its tires, blows out the tires. And when it comes to rest, she comes too. And she knows something horrible has happened. In fact, she is in an enigma. How did I get in this? And how do I get out of this? She sees glass everywhere and decides, I better check and see if I'm cut. So she reaches up to pull down the visor to look at the vanity mirror. And as she does, she realizes there is nothing up there. It's all gone. A nurse who was behind her, who's off duty, comes running down into the grass to check on her to see if she's OK. They talk, and then the fire department shows up, and they take her away. She calls me because I'm traveling in Phoenix, Arizona, and she tells me what happened. I get on a plane. I'm there the next day. I walk in and said, what are they telling you? Now, here's what happened. She said, I've been through two days of tests. And it's going to be the third day coming up. And she said, they tell me I have no head damage, no neck damage, no, no broken bones. I have no cuts. I have no bruises. There's nothing wrong with me. I said, oh, lady, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> and then, because she was asleep the whole time, there was no psychological damage because she never saw the accident. So we recommend if you ever have an accident, sleep. Just sleep through the thing. 
So she, when, she, when she determined that she was okay when the nurse was standing there, you got to know Pam. If you know Pam, you know she takes pictures of everything. And so she said, here's my, here's my phone, take pictures. So you get a picture. I looked at the picture and I began to cry. Jason, give us that next, that next shot there. You may not be able to see it very well, but I saw the fire truck, and the name of the, the department that responded is Ebenezer, which in the Old Testament is the word, thus far the Lord has been with you. And I began to cry because here's what I knew, that even before we knew it, help was on the way. I think, of, I think of Jared, who is a preschooler. And Jared had a horrible nightmare. He awakened and he was so scared. And you know that when you're that age, you know that there's monsters in the closet and under the bed. And a nightmare doesn't help. And finally, he, he got enough courage. He jumped out of bed and ran into the bedroom where his mom and dad were asleep. And he woke up his dad and said, Dad, Dad, Dad. And he said, what's wrong, what's wrong? And he told him the whole, the whole thing, the whole story. And his dad said, come here. And he, he embraced him and he began to pray that Jesus would protect him. When he got done, he said, now go back to bed. He said, nope. He said, go back to bed. Jesus is there. He said, nope. Look, Jesus will be in bed with you. And Jared said, how about you go sleep with Jesus? I'm sleeping with mommy. <laughs> Because here's the truth. You're going to talk about the Prince of Peace in a couple weeks. But we don't get peace, we don't get rest until we understand that we are embraced by someone stronger than our fears. So Paul writes these words to the church at Corinth, understanding this. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. He said these things, these things will never have a vanishing point. They will go on and on. Everything else will dissipate in your life. Everything else will disappear. But these three things I have woven into your heart. The word dimly is actually the word enigma. That you find yourself in a situation where you have fear. You don't know how you're going to get out of this. You need to be rescued and you don't know how. And you want to come to it face to face and take it on and run over it and have enough faith at that moment. But you can't do it. You're just not getting there because you just know a little bit but you don't know everything. And it's driving you crazy and you need help. And Paul says, I want you to know when you hit that spot that there is one who knows you perfectly and he knows how you got in it and he knows how you're going to get out of it. Almighty God, thus far the Lord has been with you. So Paul says the first thing that he weaves into your heart is this, a presence stronger than our fears. So he was evil, he was violent, he, he, he was an abuser, he was a criminal, and he didn't meet Jesus until the day of his own execution because it was the day that the Romans were executing Jesus. He was on the right of Jesus, and, and, 
And in the middle of all this cacophony of sound and, and all the jeering and, and all the, the calls for death and all the fear and all the intense pain and the terrorism that comes with that and the suffocation and the leg cramps that were, were plaguing him and killing him at that moment, somehow in all of that, he saw Jesus and thought, something's different there. There is a presence there. That he's different than all of this. He hadn't been baptized. He had not been baptized, but he had been immersed in a presence at that moment. He had not followed Jesus, but he has a sense that Jesus followed him to that place. He had cursed Jesus, but Jesus is blessing people, not cursing them. And he's saying, I got a choice here. Either I go with what I know or I go with what I feel at this moment. And he looks at Jesus and said, I choose you. I want you. You're the one that I need. Why? The psalmist declared it perfectly when he said this. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. God is our refuge. God is literally our safe place. That no matter what's happening around me and how horrid it is, there is a place that I go that is safe. It is the presence of God that holds me in that safe place. That while he's hanging on a cross and Jesus is hanging on a cross, he said, he's dying, but I think he's a safe place. I'll go there. God is our refuge and our strength. The psalmist wrote, or Isaiah wrote, he said, you know, they that wait upon the Lord, the word actually means to bind, to intertwine, to be woven together. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their what? Strength. Like an eagle that has come against a storm and does not beat its wings against the wind, but instead sets them straight and, and rigid, and they climb on the thermals and work their way out of the storm. He said, you're going to be like that eagle in the storm when you're in my presence. And so you will run, and you may run because you're afraid of what's behind. And as you're running, understand that you're not leaving Jesus behind. He's still running next to you saying, okay, I've got you, I've got you, I've got you. Even if you're running from me, I'm still running with you. I'm still with you. And you will run, and you will not grow weary if you recognize I'm with you. And eventually you'll start walking because you know it's okay. And we'll walk together, and you will not faint. God is my refuge and my strength. A very present help in time of trouble, that very present help simply means this. It has been time-tested and never failed. It is there. So he weaves that into our hearts as we wait upon him and understand his presence, and he helps us know that we are being helped. You know, if you take a sponge and you put it in a bucket of water, and you let it absorb the water, and you pull it back out, and you squeeze it, do you get Gatorade? Do you get diesel fuel? What do you get? You give out what you're soaking in. So when you are walking with Jesus, and you see someone who needs help, and the heart in you says, 
Jesus loves that person. Jesus wants you to go to that person. You go to that person, and you may say, I don't have the resources. I don't know what to do. You just go with the presence of Jesus. And as you walk with them, when they get squeezed by the pressure of their life and their issues, and you're walking with them, you get squeezed too, and what they give out is fear, and what you give out is safety, strength, and a certainty. Because that's what God has designed for us to do. That is what he has woven into us. And as that happens, we soon discover that not only do we have faith, but there is hope. Check this video out. In 2021, Convoy of Hope empowered 37,000 women and girls. We provide seed capital and education to start businesses. All over the world, we have vocational training opportunities where skills in culinary arts, sewing, agriculture, cosmetology, and information technology unlock doors for women to thrive. We disciple girls and introduce them to true freedom. Mothers are given vitamins and education to ensure their infants are healthy. But sometimes, hope comes in unusual ways. In Europe, behind the beautiful buildings and architecture is another world. Women from places like Nigeria, Romania, and Brazil are enslaved. Some were abducted and smuggled, others were sold by their parents in order to provide food for the rest of the family. Our team has met some who have fled the war in Ukraine, desperate to find hope, only to be deceived. What began as a promise for employment turned into a life of utter hopelessness and darkness. At Convoy, we not only serve those in poverty who are seen, but we also serve those who we find. This is what God is like. The Good Shepherd leaves the 99 to find the one. These women suffer in poverty, and sometimes all it takes is a little hope. One of the women in our programs was given a box of hope while she worked in the brothel. It is a miracle that our team is given access to some of these places. Something like a bar of soap, some hand lotion, chapstick, pure drinking water, a few healthy meals, can make the difference in someone's life. When she received the box, she thought to herself, there are still kind people in the world. The subtle glimpse of hope gave her the courage to risk her life and flee. Now, she is part of Convoy's Women's Empowerment Program and receiving healing. When she was asked what hope is, she replied, hope is the last thing you lose. So Paul writes, God weaves into us this faith. And then God weaves into us this hope. And hope is simply this. Hope is a future that outlasts our pain. So I want to introduce you to Hal Donaldson. Hal Donaldson is, is the founder and president of Convoy of Hope. And this is Hal. He's, he's in the front, blonde hair. When Hal was 12... His parents headed off for a church business meeting because they were the pastors, and Hal and his siblings were the babysitter. But an hour after the parents left, there was a knock at the door, and two uniformed policemen were standing at the door, and they said, we're sorry to report to you that your parents were hit by a drunk driver, and your dad has died, and your mother's critically injured. We don't know if she's going to make it. 
They brought the kids out to the porch where the neighbors had gathered, and the policeman said, someone needs to take the Donaldson kids tonight, otherwise we have to take them down to the station and, and, and put them there. And, and eventually, Bill and Levada Davis raised their hands. They were brand new believers in Jesus, a young couple who lived in a single wide trailer and already was filling it up with their own people. But they said, we'll take them. So they stayed what they thought would be a night or two nights, and it turned into a week, and then two weeks, and a month, and two months, and eventually for almost an entire year. Hal's mom came back, and she lived there also. She could hardly walk because of the, the, the injuries that she, she had, had experienced at that moment, at that time of the crash. Hal said, for the first time, I understood poverty. Uh, Bill and Veda used all their savings, and, and Bill began working double shifts at the quarry. And Veda spent all the day cooking and cleaning. And so they found themselves on food stamps, and they find themselves with welfare, and they found that, that the only way they could eat sometimes is when the church would bring groceries. And Hal said, my life has changed, and it's just, it was just a moment of despair for him. And Bill, recognizing this, said to, to Hal, he said, don't let, don't let the tragedy of your childhood be an excuse, for where you start in life does not have to dictate where you end. And at that moment, Hal had hope. Because you see, hope is, is, is faith tilted forward. If he can do it here, he can do it there. So Hal did work hard, and he became a successful writer, and he became a successful journalist, and he went to Calcutta, India to write a book, and while he was there, the people he was interviewing said, you need to interview the woman who has really influenced us. And so Hal found himself in an interview with Mother Teresa. And while he interviewed Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa interviewed Hal. And she said, Hal, what are you doing for the poor and suffering? Hal said, I figured it wasn't a good idea to lie to Mother Teresa. So I said, nothing. And she said this, everybody can do something. Just go do the next kind thing God puts in front of you. You may not be able to feed, feed 100, but you can feed one. So Hal went back home, contemplating what had, had been said to him. For days he just wept, trying to determine what he should do, and he took to heart those words, just do the next kind thing. So he grabbed his brothers, loaded up his pickup truck with groceries, and they went out to feed the migrant workers in Northern California. That began in 1994. But three men in a truck started there, has turned into serving over 200 million people so far. Just do the next kind thing that God puts in front of you. Last year, 31 million people found hope. I'll give you an idea. We have a slide there. 465,000 children have been fed every school day this last year because of your participation with us. 34,000 women who, who are told they're nothing, nothing more than property to us are finding their voice, they're finding their hope, they're finding a vision of what they can be, and they're finding jobs as we train them and then give them the seed capital to begin their businesses. And right now, 90 to 95% of those women we train are still in business, and it's changing their lives so they don't have to choose which child gets fed, and they don't sell their kids so they can get feed the rest, they are feeding their own kids and other people in the community. All in Jesus' name because it's done through the local church. 
23,000 people have been trained in agriculture so they can feed their own community. We responded to 64 disasters. We're usually first ones in, last ones out. 29 countries, 80 community events that say to people, there's hope for you. It's interesting that sometimes you get hope before you get God. As you spend time with someone and say, I'm here to help you, and as you walk together and they feel that presence and they feel like that you are hopeful for them, they'll say, what is that? And as they're spending time with you, it begins to re they begin to realize that there is a relationship that you have with Almighty God, and they say, how can I do that? Can you show me? Because it is part of the gospel. Thirdly, Paul says that Jesus weaves into us a heart eclipsing our plans. You see, if you've got faith and hope, then the leading edge of our lives is simply love. God said through the prophet Jeremiah, he said, when you meet, when you meet God personally, he's going to reshape your heart so that you no longer have a heart of stone, hardness against God and other, and other people around you, but you'll have a softened heart that will recognize their pain and know that through God you can do something. It is your DNA as you follow Jesus. Mother Teresa described it this way. Just go do the next kind thing God puts in front of you. Be a very present help in time of trouble. You see, we don't feed the hungry so they come to Jesus. We feed the hungry because we came to Jesus. It's our DNA. So here's what I've learned since I last was with you. To be able to do this and to understand this, and you know, I served as a pastor for 41 years and there was always people wanting something and sometimes you have to screen them to find out if they're for real. And so you get this skepticism about you. Oh, really? And God basically has said, stop it. And when God says, stop it, what do you do? Stop it. I was standing in line with Pam at, at, at an airline counter at United in Springfield, Missouri, and it was a long line and only one agent. And it was taking forever, thought we were going to lose our flight. And she was one of those people who was very nice, but very congenial and, 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 and an extreme extrovert. So when people would come up, she'd say, well, hi, how many kids you got? And, and she'd start through, where you live? I've lived there before. And I'd say, please, ladies, stop. So finally, we're getting close. There's a couple in front of us with several kids. They get up to the line. Everything's going great. And they say, OK, you have to pay for your baggage. They hand them cash and say, we don't take cash. She said, well, we don't use cards. What are we going to do? She said, well, maybe you can ask somebody in the line behind you to use their card. You pay them cash. Now, I'm thinking in my brain, first of all, hurry up. Secondly, I'm thinking, I'm using Convoy of Hope's card, I'm not, so I can't do that. And, and I'm just standing there, and finally, some nice guy in the back walks up and says, here, I got you. And, and while we're standing there, I just the heart of Jesus said, dude, did you know the heart talks that way? Dude, you could have done that. In fact, you could pay for it. You missed it. So here's what I've learned. And everything I've said to you today, this is what I want you to hear. Don't miss the moment. It can happen any moment. I was walking into a convenience store about a month and a half ago, and there's a guy sitting out there, obviously homeless, with two dogs. And he's just sitting there. He's not asking for anything. He's just sitting there. 
And as I'm walking by, that DNA of God says, that guy. So I walk up and I say, are you hungry? And he looks at me like, what kind of question is that? Yeah. What do you like? He said, anything you can get me. So I walked in and I got him stuff here and then I, I, I got some, I said, what do your dogs eat? He said, everything I eat. So I'm finding stuff. And then I feel like the Holy Spirit says, well, get the guy dessert. So I'm pulling out pies and stuff and I go out and I give it to him and I just say, God cares for you. You say, well, did he give his life to Jesus? I don't know. Because that's what I was supposed to do at that moment. Don't miss the moment. Years ago, I was at a family reunion in Berkeley, California. And we decided to go deep sea fishing out of the Berkeley Marina, and they told us, be on time or the charter boat goes without you. So, how many of you know when you're with family, there's always somebody who's late? <laughs> yep. If you don't know anybody like that, it's probably you. So there's a late one. We get there. We're running down these piers, going like this, these docks. And we see down at this end of the dock, we got to go there and then that way. At this end, right here, there's water. And there's these two guys arguing. And one slugs the other one and knocks him in the bay, about four to feet, five feet down, in the cold bay water. He's wearing a fisherman's sweater, so it's weighing him down. He can't get out. And we know if we help him, we're not getting the boat. So what do you do? We went for the boat. No, 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 we didn't do that. <laughs> we pulled him out. He didn't even say thank you. He just ran. I thought, great. So we walked down, and the boat was there. We got on the boat, waiting to go. And obviously, we're waiting for someone. And then here comes somebody running down the dock to get to the boat. And someone says, that's the captain. It was the guy we pulled out of the water. <laughs> So please hear me clearly. Sometimes the person you're kind to, the person you give to, is the person God sent you to get to where you need to go. So Pam and I planted a church in Boise, Idaho. About two months into planting of this church, a really nice girl named Cindy, I thought she was a single mom. One day she came up to us and said, will you go see my husband? I said, oh, husband, where is he? She said, the Idaho State Penitentiary. Will you go see him? What's he in for? Armed robbery. Now I'm thinking, I'm not an a, a, a Idaho State Penitentiary type of guy. I don't even have a tattoo. I don't know if they let you in without a tattoo. <laughs> but God's heart says, you don't have to feel qualified. You just got to love. So I went, and I went into this chapel. I met Keith, very hardened, and trying to discover Jesus. And, and it was rough. It just I came out of there exhausted just because of, obviously, the culture, the atmosphere, and, and Keith. And, and so he said, will you come back? So I went back every month. Pam and I got ready to leave that church, and Keith got out of prison the week before. And so I arranged to meet Keith at Burger King. And we sat down, and I said, tell me what's going on. And he said, well, you know, I'm on parole, and I've got to do these certain things, and it's going to be tough because I've got to take public transportation, and sometimes it's not where I need to be at the time I need to be there. And, and while, while we're sitting there, that heart, that DNA of God that he's been weaving into us says, give him your car. I said, I'd like to talk to Holy Spirit. 
because I think you're off base. <laughs> While we're talking, I think I'll go home, tell Pam, and she'll say, are you nuts? Because that's the car we're going to sell to get a nicer car when we move to Oregon. And I got home and told her, and she said, well, give him the car. I said, I don't like you. <laughs> I called Keith and said, hey, meet me. And we went back and I met, and I said, Keith, I just think that, that I want to give you this car. He said, why? I said, because I think it's God's car, and he wants you to have it. So I gave it to him. So we lost touch, and several years went by, and we get a call from Cindy, and she said, Jack, I hate to tell you this, because I know you're not aware of it, but Keith slipped through the cracks, and he ended up committing a double homicide. He's been convicted, and he's going to be the first one executed in Idaho over about two or three decades. And he wants you to come be a spiritual advisor and walk him through his death. They don't, they don't train you for this stuff. And the heart of God says, you don't have to feel qualified. Just follow the heart. So I went and met him in November. He's due to be executed on a, on a Wednesday, or a Tuesday night, Wednesday morning at midnight in January. I go and I'm behind the glass and I got the phone, I'm talking to Keith and we're talking back and forth and he's telling me what's going on and he said, you know, the crazy thing is, he said, I've, I've been angry at everybody and blamed everybody for what's happened in my life and it's like Jesus just showed me a video of my life and said, these were all your choices. And I said, Keith, that's great because now you can ask forgiveness. And he did. Still a lot of rough edges. Pam and I came back the week of his execution, and Pam spent time with the family while I was in, into the prison with, with Keith, both of us having a difficult task to accomplish. The first night, Monday night, we talked about life and stuff, and what, what freaked me out is it wasn't behind glass. They took me in a death row and into his cell. And I said, Jesus, he better be reformed. He's got nothing to lose. And so we talked, and then the next night I came back, and Pam was in a hotel room, gathered with the family, ministering to them, and protesters were outside the prison. It was just, it was an incredible sight. So we talked about life and Jesus, and there were, there were, there were four things that Keith said, for me to die peacefully, they've got to happen, and it's impossible. And by the time I talked to him on Tuesday night, all four had taken place. As we sat there, I said, Keith, have you ever had communion? He said, never. I said, would you like to? He said, yeah. So I said to the guard, can you get me some grape juice? and a cracker, and they brought me a dinner roll and grape snapple. And Keith had his first communion. And one of those things that had to take place is Keith needed to ask forgiveness of the families, but he hated the families because they caused him so much trouble. That's how convoluted his, his view was. So moving close to midnight, he says, I think I need to ask forgiveness of the family. So we asked for a phone. I called a news anchor, a local news anchor, who was a believer in Jesus. I woke her up out of her sleep and said, D, this is Keith Wells. He wants to talk to you. Keith said, will you tell the family, please forgive me, I'm sorry. And then he just let out a sigh. They came in, they shackled him up. We walked out of the death row, into the outside, into a trailer. It was the execution trailer. And... They put him on this gurney and they put the IVs in him that would administer the chemicals to kill him. We're getting close to midnight and the warden walks up to me and says, keep him calm because Sandra Day O'Connor has contacted all of the Supreme Court justices and they're deciding whether or not to put a stay to the execution. 
So Keith and I talked about hunting, fishing, Psalm, the Psalms, Psalm 23, his family. And then the warden came up and said, it's still on, we're going for it. So go back here, go that hallway, and go with the witnesses and get behind the glass. So I did. So then they read the, declare of, the declaration of execution, and then they said, Keith, what are your last words? Now, the night before, I said, Keith, what are you going to say when they say, what are your last words? He said, I'm going to flip him the bird. I said, Keith, let's talk. So I said, Keith, what are your last words? He said this, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Keith died. The next morning we had a funeral in an undisclosed location and Keith was buried. On the way back from Boise to Oregon, I said to Pam, all my life I've looked for my identity. I've looked for who I should be and, and, and what would give me an essence of who I am, who I've created to be. And I'm going to tell you right now that what I've discovered is that I'm called to bring life out of death. And I could die today knowing that I've been totally fulfilled because I followed what had been woven into my heart. A couple weeks later, Cindy called and we're getting caught up. And she said, by the way, Jack, do you know why Keith asked you to give, or asked you to, to, to follow him? And, and be with him through this execution. And I said, no. She said, he asked you because you gave him your car. Because he said, that kindness and that awareness that God loved him that much, he could trust you. And I felt so bad at, at, at first because I felt like when I gave him that car, I, known, I knew enough of the prosperity gospel. I thought, okay, now God's going to give me an Audi. God gave me nothing except an identity the fact that I was able to bring Keith from death to life simply because I didn't miss the moment. Don't miss it. So you've been talking about one day to feed the world. Don't miss it. I'm not here to coerce you into giving anything. I'm just saying don't miss the moment. Because right now in Eastern Africa, there are people, one a day is dying because they're in such a horrible four-year drought that 4 million people are food insecure. 850,000 children are malnourished. 116,000 nursing moms are undernourished. And God says, don't miss the moment. And not only, not only giving your one day, because here's the deal. When you give a one day, what you're saying is, on this day I work not for me and not for Erie first. I worked for that lady in the Philippines who has no food and she's going to get a job. I'm working for that kid who decided to go to school and be fed instead of working on the garbage dump. I'm giving this day for that reason, and I'm going to tell you that you won't miss it because God will take care of you because when you give as he tells you to give, he resources you. But not only, not only one day, but this week. When the heart of God says, help there, don't miss the moment. Just do the next kind thing God tells you to do. And they will experience mighty God. See, your one day is going to change their every day. God bless you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Eerie First Podcast. We'd love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. You can follow Eerie First on Facebook or Instagram, or visit eeriefirst.org for all our latest news, announcements, and information. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.